Holy Father, on this special evening, we celebrate the coming into the world of Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Word of God came in the flesh and dwelt among us, and we did not receive Him, Lord. Christ went to the cross and was crucified for us because, Lord, of our sin. Because, Lord, we could not see the plan that you had laid out. How could it be that a babe born in a stable could be the promised one in Messiah? How could be a, a, a babe born into a family of so, uh, such low esteem? How could that babe be the one who, who the nation had been waiting for? But Father, we come this evening acknowledging that in your wisdom, in your love, and in your grace, it was the perfect plan. Because in Jesus, we not only had a Savior who paid the price for our sins, but also a Savior who showed us the way, who lived an exemplary life, who taught us with such grace and wisdom. And so we come this evening celebrating that because Jesus was born into this world, Lord, this world for all of its faults and its moments of chaos and and where sin still prevails in many lives, this world is better because he was born and came. And above all, Father, this world is better because of the hope that we have in Him, that He has overcome death. Father, in Him we have the hope that we too will one day be a resurrection people, reigning with You in heaven forever. Father, I thank You for each soul here this evening. Uh, I thank You that they have come out this evening to worship You and Your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Well, Lydia and I watched It's a Wonderful Life last night, and she said, is this like, you know, are we just doing this for research for the sermon? If I was doing that last night, it was a little bit late to be <laughs> watching, watching that. But a uh, couple of takeaways from that. Uh, the beginning of the movie, there, there's uh, a number of prayers being raised up on behalf of, of George Bailey. And uh, that's a really touching moment now, as uh, going back from when I watched it uh, before I was a pastor and everything, just to hear those prayers going up for him. Uh, the, the other thing is that the part where he's actually, you know, has uh, almost taken his life, uh, he's regretting his life, he wished he had never been born, and all that, that part afterward was shorter than I remembered it being, you know, and everything leading up to that was, uh, uh, was really important to see everything that he had done, the re- relationships that he had, and somehow he came to the point where he thought nobody loved him. He thought that he had disappointed everybody, let everybody down, failed. And so it was all over for him. And that's what the movie is about, that it really is a wonderful life. And he had led a wonderful life, but somehow darkness had seeped into his heart and to his mind and convinced him that he was not worth anything to anybody. And so uh, that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is is the fact that this is a wonderful life. And I know that people hear that and they say, well, boy, that's Pollyannish, you know, optimism. And this person is just, they just, uh, they've never had any problems and they don't know what it's like and so forth. But it is a wonderful life. And, and, uh, and I want to talk about why it's a wonderful life. Maybe not for the reasons that we normally judge lives on. But this life is a wonderful life because Jesus Christ came into the world. Uh, the uh, Dr. James Kennedy wrote a book a few years ago about um, asking the question, what if Jesus had never lived? Just as if, what if George Bailey had never lived? Uh, and it's a wonderful life. What if Jesus had never lived? 
And so he went and, and, and wrote the book, and, and he named a number of institutions and, and things in Western civilization and in world civilizations that are better off because Jesus lived. That, that many of the things that we take for granted, uh, hospitals, hospitals arose out of the early Christian church. As they saw uh, in Rome, the Roman custom was if a baby was born and the baby was not perfect, the baby could just be set aside, taken out to a cave, to a hill someplace, and abandoned. The early Christians would go and take the children and would care for them. Uh, people who very often uh, the society just didn't even think it was worth caring for them when they were injured. The church would take care of them. So the very idea of hospitals comes out of the church, and, and the church did it because Jesus Christ cared for and healed people. So he talks about all these things that music and architecture, education, medical knowledge, government, and every other institution among human beings. Everything has been affected by Jesus Christ. And I agree with him that everything, uh, because of Jesus Christ being in this world, everything historically was dynamically changed. Now some 80 years earlier, before James Kennedy wrote this book, there was a Dr. James Allen Francis, and he wrote in a similar vein about the effect of Jesus in human history. And you may be familiar with his essay. It was actually part of a, of a sermon he preached on a Christmas Eve, and it was entitled One Solitary Life. And it used to be, uh, it seems like when Lydia and I were first married and for some years after, every Christmas there would be two, three, four, five Christmas cards that had folded up in them one solitary life, or maybe the Christmas card itself would have that those quotes uh, from his sermon, One Solitary Life. And, and so many of you are probably familiar with this, where uh, it begins like this. Um, uh, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, all the ways that, that Jesus in his life uh, kind of, uh, it goes against human logic to think that somebody who only had a three-year ministry, and at the end of it, he ended up being crucified. Now, there are pastors out there who have been crucified at times in their ministries. They get into a point, and, but, but Jesus Christ actually had an entire nation turn on him. He had the government turn on him. He had the Roman government turn aside from him, turn their back on him. And then he was hung on the cross with two thieves on either side. And yet, as this preacher said, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth, earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. While everything that Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Francis said is true, I believe that the far greater effect of Jesus Christ is the personal, immutable, lasting, eternal difference Jesus made in this world by giving his life as a ransom for our sins and promising us we would never be alone. To me, it is the fact that I know that Jesus Christ loved me enough to die for me. 
You see, God could have broadcast from heaven and said, I love the world. And a lot of people would have said, words are cheap. But what God did was, knowing this, He sent His Son into the world. His Son who was fully God and fully human, and He died upon that cross at the hands of human beings who had been created by God. And then, Jesus conquers death on our behalf. And before he went to that cross, he had, he had times with his disciples. They were in John 13, 14, 15, so you, you will read about this. Jesus talking to them about how you are my friends. He says this over and over, I want you to know you're my friends. And greater love has no man than this, that, than that he's willing to die for his friends. He wanted them to know that, and he wants us to know that. It isn't, uh, it isn't that somehow he affected governments and, and he affected art and architecture. That's, that's wonderful, but what he really affected was you and me. That's where the effect was to be, to say you are not alone. You are not alone. You know, I, I, now, I know that there would be people who would be saying, well, that's all well and good for those who have it all together, that Jesus would want to be their friend. I'm not sure Jesus would want to be my friend. My life is a wreck. I'm not a very good person. Uh, I'm not even sure God cares or knows if I'm alive or not. And I can understand why some of us would think that. Because we're used to being around people who very casually end relationships and friendships. We get into arguments. We have disputes. We, dispro- we disapprove of people's actions. We disapprove of the person they chose to marry. Whatever it may be. But our friendships, our relationships are very fragile. And so, so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how faithful a friend God is to me. We are His children. He desperately wants to bring us home even with our imperfections. The scriptures tell us that over and over and yet we find it hard to believe because Satan at the same time that God is speaking to us through his word and through his spirit, Satan is there saying, nah, you really believe that? You really think he cares for you? You think God isn't angry about what you just did? You think God isn't angry for the thousand times that you have gone against his will? You're just dust and that's all you are. And I think about myself and I think about how pitiful I am at, at times in my own imperfections. Uh, you know, I walk kind of funny sometimes. I'm flat-footed. I'm not exactly Brad Pitt when it comes to looks. <laughs> that close, but I just missed. You know, when I'm preaching sometimes, my shirt tail comes out. And somebody will be nice enough to come up and say, hey, do you know your shirt tail's out? But God could care less about my shirt tail. And he could care less that there are a lot of times I have a hard time focusing on just one thing at a time. I tend to try to focus on a lot of different things. I was made for the age of the computer and the internet because I love to multitask. And so I've got my phone and I've got my laptop. I've got my dog. I've got my wife. Not in that order. But I'm multitasking. God overlooks the fact that I have a habit of not picking up my feet when I walk. My dad was always telling me, stop shuffling. So I have a tendency to trip. 
And that for some reason I can never get my shoelaces to stay tied, so I have to double knot them. And believe it or not, this evening, Destiny over here, as I was walking past her, said, your shoelace is untied. As proof that this is true. God knows that I have a hard time remembering names, and He remembers that I snore. And he remembers a time six years ago when I knocked over the communion cup here in front of the whole church. Yep. And walked around with purple khaki pants the rest of the service. He must have winced when I got a speeding ticket on the way to my first Easter Sunday worship as a pastor 20 years ago. I was only doing 80. Yep. Do you think for a moment that God isn't aware that I too often say the wrong thing at the wrong time? Or that I once preached a funeral for a man I had never met and accidentally changed his name from Herman to Herbert? (laughs) Partway through the service. This guy was important though. And the, the senior pastor was gone. I was the associate, so they said, you'll have to do the service. And I was very nervous about it. He was the guy who, who created the uh, civil defense system for the United States back in the 50s when we were scared that we were going to be bombed by the Russians. And so all those fallout shelters and everything, he did that. And I called him Herbert instead of Herman. Of course, God is aware of all these things and reassures me through his spirit that I am uh, still loved and heaven bound. But as I said before, Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the father of lies, has a field day with me, daily reminding me through the whispers of my conscience that I am not wonderfully made and that I'm not worth a moment of God's precious time, that I am dust and nothing more. But God sees, God knows, God forgives over and over. Nothing can separate me, separate me from his love in Christ Jesus, his word says. And the promises of his word resoundingly defeat the debilitating accusations of Satan in my life. 2,000 years ago, our father had what goes beyond ingenious because God's wisdom is so far and above ours. But he had an answer to Satan's accusations against you and me and every person who ever breathed the breath of air. God's response to Satan was all the more powerful because it didn't begin in the emperor's palace in Rome. It didn't begin in Herod's palace in Jerusalem. It didn't begin with power. It didn't begin with all the things that we think we need to be influential and to matter in this world. He didn't rely on human power or personality or persuasiveness. Instead, the prophet Isaiah foretold that God would rely on a child who would grow up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. That the Messiah who would establish the kingdom of God and defeat the adversary would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There would be nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This child who would be described as wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, would be despised and rejected by mankind, Isaiah told us. He would be a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He would be held in low esteem and people would hide their faces from him. This child born in a stable in Bethlehem would take up our pain and bear our suffering. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that would bring us peace was on him. It was his wounds that would heal us 
It was His wounds that would wipe away our iniquity and our sins. All of this would be laid upon Him. When Jesus was arrested and whipped and tried, He would not open His mouth as Isaiah had prophesied. But He would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, pouring out His life unto death, bearing the sin of many, interceding for our transgressions. This is what the Isaiah the prophet prophesied centuries before the birth of Jesus. Folks, the great news of Jesus of Christmas is that God is with us. He's on our side. He fights our battles. He will bring us home. As I close, I, I wanted to share with you a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is a, a mouthful for uh, someone who doesn't speak uh, Spanish, but uh, Spanish, German. Okay, I, I don't even speak English, so I don't know. He was a great Christian theologian. He actually came over and taught in the United States, uh, leaving Germany at times. And he could have stayed in the United States. As Hitler took power and rose up, he was encouraged to remain here. But instead, he needed to go back, he said, to pastor the Christians in Germany. And if you know the history under Hitler's regime, as he rose to power, he began to implement ways to control the churches in Germany. The government would actually write the sermons and the liturgy for the church services. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of what was called the Confessing Church, the few handful of pastors who said, we will not do this. And so he was thrown into prison. And there he languished for a couple of years until the war was nearing its end. And in December of 1944, he wrote this, uh, this letter about, uh, about his Christmas celebration. He said, I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents for others, but now that we have nothing to give, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. Our hands may be empty, but our understanding will be greater. We will truly be beggars. And the poorer our quarters, the more clearly we perceive that our hearts should be Christ's home on earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis five months later, just a few days before the Allies came and freed the prisoners. But he would be the first to say that in those final days, he had a wonderful life. Not because of fame or fortune or power, but because he had truly come to realize that the great gift of Christmas was Christ in us. It may be coincidental that the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, who if you're a Methodist, you're familiar with him, his last words on this earth were to his friends who were there by his bedside. The best is this. That God is with us. And that is the key to a wonderful life. Recognizing, acknowledging, and welcoming God into our lives and into our hearts. Opening our hearts so that He can make a home there. I pray that as we proceed over the next day, that as our, our uh, attention comes back to Christ where it should be, and what He did for us, that we would all open our hearts to Him and then know the glory and the grace that was born on that day in Bethlehem. Let us pray.
Holy Father, may the warmth of your love, may the riches of your grace, and may the gift of your Son be upon our hearts and minds this evening. In his holy name we pray, and amen.